0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad.
1: problem coming into 2007 was ambiguity we had in many instances over the previous decades intervened to rescue investors and the Treasury never articulated a clear set of parameters like here's what we back here's what we don't back so there's deposit insurance by law that's backed by the FDIC but we kept intervening to support uninsured depositors uninsured creditors of these failing banking institutions but never wanted to admit that we were going to do that in the future in fact we engaged in in a strategy. People called it constructive ambiguity.
0: Too big to fail. Too big to care. New normal. Old normal. No normal. What did we ultimately learn from our generation's defining financial calamity? And did anything truly change? Stay tuned. Full disclosure is made possible by Elwood Thompsons. Let me read from their website. Richmond is our home. It's our community. It's our place. Serving its people is what we're most passionate about, and we believe that spreading health and wellness throughout Richmond can have a ripple effect through the entire community and maybe even the world. There's nothing we'd rather do and nowhere we'd rather do it. You know I love them because I'm there every day having a cold brew coffee, availing myself of the peanut butter machine. Uh, gosh, the Beat Cafe the Wine Bar. They are at the corner of Elwood and Thompson Streets, hence the name, and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining me in studio, it's a privilege, it's an honor, Jeffrey Lacker, president of the Richmond Fed between 2004 and 2017. He's now distinguished professor of economics at Virginia Commonwealth University. How are you, sir?
1: Great. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank
0: you for finally coming on. I've been nagging you for years. (laughs) I'm going to start this With the meaning of life question from which everything else will cascade from. Now, my professional career is about 20 years. And I started – I worked for Goldman right out of college in 1998 into the throes of the Russian currency crisis and LTCM and everything. And throughout that period, I've always pondered the question, especially after the emergency interest rate interventions of the 2000s and everything that happened after the financial crisis – what, pray tell, is normal? Can you give me a year <laughs> when things were normal, i.e., there was an emergency Federal Reserve intervention or yeah. some exogenous shock mm-hmm. or the Iraq War or the yeah. Depression or the New Deal or the Tennessee Valley Authority? Can you tell me what that
1: year was for benchmarking no. purposes? <laughs> <laughs> it's a loaded question, and it's a really interesting and, and kind of subtle one. So the, um, let me just back up and and uh, describe sort of macroeconomics um as of ten, certainly twenty years ago, uh, tended to conceive of um, business cycle fluctuations—the um, the, the movements over the business cycle in output, employment, and even inflation or interest rates and the like—as fluctuations around a fixed mean. It was the most convenient way analytically and mathematically to do the analysis, and the most convenient way statistically to do the analysis. But it, in in essence. Taking that framework to the data imposed on the data the assumption that there was a fixed long-run mean growth rate, that there was a growth rate that was normal, the, the normal growth rate from 1948 through 1990. A
0: line that you could draw. Right. You could draw a line thing, and you right. could
1: sketch it out and it would go forward and that future fluctuations were going to be around that line that was given by a fixed percentage growth rate that was invariant over time. And we've now come to appreciate that in between business cycle fluctuations, fluctuations that occur at a time scale of maybe three to eight or ten years, um, in between that frequency and um, the longer run are some meaningful fluctuations that last a couple of decades in growth rates. So um, average growth rates can sort of sag for a couple of decades, and business cycles need to be thought of as fluctuations around that Depressed growth rate, and that growth rate might may pick up in the future, and we we'd be fl- business cycles would be fluctuations around some higher growth rate, and we've come to appreciate that since the the great financial crisis and the, the great recession of two thousand seven, eight, and nine, um, and uh, increasingly now people have to be really upfront, and and analysis takes into account that yes, there could be slow moving fluctuations in the growth. Of the economy um, that need to be taken on board, so that you don't you don't unfairly uh, malign the expansion uh, because it isn't living up to that but fixed you, growth you rate line. You can't
0: back out all of the you know partially hydrogenated stuff and everything and get it a core year when we were at our truest, most fundamental, normal economy. No inflation out of whack. No unemployment out of whack. No extraordinary Fed stimulus or fiscal
1: stimulus. No war time industrial complex. Is there such a thing? Well, I think he could point to the 1990s as a period in which inflation had finally come down to a rate that the Fed intended to maintain it at. So it's a period of 93 to 94. Inflation came down from four to five percent to around two percent. And it it's fluctuated around two percent since then, with the exception of um, a period in this expansion, which was sort of one and a half, one one and a half for a little while, uh, it's been pretty steadily fluctuating just around two percent. Uh, there've been some meaningful swings, but basically around two percent. Now, at the same time, unemployment rate came down pretty low, so it got down to three or four percent, three point nine, I think, at the lowest. Um in the late nineteen nineties. So I think but then is that an organic number? I mean this is where it starts no, to get I don't cosmic think so. if there's no, internet froth because on top of everything.
0: Uh, so And the Fed. I remember the Fed after L T C. Back
1: away from the word froth. I challenge that. I mean that's not a technical term and not one that's easy to give a precise definition to. So in the late nineteen nineties, you had growth in productivity, the output of goods and services per hour or per, you know, appropriate unit of labor input that was relatively high by historical standards. And this is one of these things that swings around. We'd had a period of relatively good productivity growth from 48 through, say, 73. From 73 through, through the early 90s, we had a, a relatively depressed average rate of productivity growth. And that, that growth rate Rose substantially in the late 1990s. That growth rate is lower now, and that productivity growth rate is really key to a lot of macroeconomic variables, and it's essential to assessing what's normal. So, for the productivity growth at that time, I think the late 90s was a a reasonably normal period. Now, there were financial shocks obviously laid upon it, so every year seemed a little bit different, and. Monetary policy went a little haywire in late 1998. We cut interest rates three times, probably too much. Certainly held on to that lower rate for too long into 1999 and let inflation creep up and had to overreact and uh, essentially induce the, the recession. Was that inflation in though
0: or asset inflation? Was that traditional inflation that scared them, or were that was was Greenspan at that point mindful of the fact that the internet bubble had gotten way too big, that the tech and you know fintech bubble? Back then. I
1: think it's pretty clear Greenspan did not intend to deliberately prick the the asset price bubble, mm. the tech price bubble um, with monetary policy. Everything he'd written about uh, and even after that about his philosophy about asset price swings um, indicates that he, he didn't think it was appropriate to use monetary policy to a try and identify and prick asset price bubbles. Um, and for good reason. They're very difficult to uh, detect. He very famously labeled um, or raised the possibility of irrational exuberance in December 1996.
0: And then everything peaked in March of 2000.
1: Right. But you've got four years there where arguably things weren't terribly out of whack in terms of equity values. It's a a matter of opinion. You've got a difference of differences of opinion across asset valuations, and it's really difficult for a a policymaker to have confidence that some market participants are right and others are wrong. So I think it was it was wise of him to hold back from that. Having said that, inflation, the way we traditionally measure it and think of it, which is the purchasing power of money declining, that did rise in late ninety in in nineteen ninety nine two thousand, and hmm. that warranted tighter interest rates because I I think the the interest rate cuts in ninety eight were. Too
0: accommodative. And
1: um, too accommodative. They were a reaction to the financial, financial market crisis, turmoil right. that arose after LTCM and the Russian debt default in the summer of 1998.
0: Yeah, it, it freaked me out so much. It's when I joined my first job. I flunked my Series 7 the first time. I felt like I've traveled this far to tell Jeff Lacker that I flunked the Series <laughs> 7 20 years ago. But I digress. Let's take a window <laughs> of time between the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy in the middle of September of 2008 and... And September 2018, Fed funds rate, the main interest rate of the Federal Reserve at the time of the Lehman bankruptcy was 2%. Exactly 10 years later, it was just under 2%. Everything that happened in the intervening 10 years, let's talk about a record stock market run. The banks were recapitalized. Junk bonds have sold like crazy. You had companies issuing 50-year debt. You have constant headlines about unemployment has never been this, um, you know, easy. Everything is is I mean, the, the job openings, the difficulty of hiring people and wage pressures and, and, and whatnot. Um, real estate is gangbusters. We start to see flippers all over the neighborhood again. Why in the world would the Fed remain that accommodative to the point that we still have the
1: same main interest rate as we did in the teeth of the meltdown? I'll say a couple of things. First, it's important to note that in the immediate aftermath of the recession that That hit a trough in the middle of 2009. For the next two or three years, it was a widespread expectation that economic output, real GDP in the U.S., would return to a line drawn through history, like I described before, one at a constant growth rate with a constant productivity growth that we were falling farther and farther away from. Since then, um, that that line, which people called potential uh, GDP, it, it's now understood to have have uh, tilted down and that the capacity of the economy, it's understood, is is less than we thought back then. But it was expected that there would be a fairly rapid recovery to um, that line. And that, and that was based in part on the observation that across post-war U.S. recessions, the ones with the steepest, and deepest declines had seen the the most rapid
0: accelerate, recovery, accelerate, right? right.
1: Uh, so it, they were d- deep V-shaped recoveries, and then there were shallow recessions with shallow recoveries. So it was expected that growth would be four percent for a couple of years, and then we'd get back to trend, and then that would be it. So the the reset it, it it turned out we just got two percent growth after mid oh nine we just chugged along at 2% real gdp growth for some time and that was terribly disappointing and and the hypothesis that circulated and got a lot of traction in washington was that monetary policy that more monetary policy stimulus was needed so not only did we keep the federal funds rate near zero we actually engaged in a set of communication Um, communication strategies to try and convince people that we were going to keep interest rates lower for longer than they thought we were going to keep interest rates low. On top of that, with with quantitative easing, right? Not just
0: communication, not just, I call it qualitative easing and quantitative easing. Qualitatively, like, hey, we're going to keep, how many times could Bernanke browbeat things
1: down? Right. And on top of that, we were buying long-term assets in an attempt to bring down, you know, uh, uh, taking another tack at bringing down long-term interest rates. So in this rates. bubble atop
0: your head, I didn't mean to say bubble, uh, in this, this, I, I don't know, this thought process that goes on, what is the total price tag you put on the intervention since the financial crisis in terms of uh,
1: stimulus uh, plus,
0: you mm-hmm. know, quantitative easing, opportunity cost? Is there a number?
1: Yeah, it's really hard to quantify. So I, I, I work from a baseline uh, presumption that um, it's likely that the quantitative easing had, um, by itself, um, very little effect on longer-term yields. The longer-term yields were what they were going to be, and and that swapping longer-term assets on, on, putting them on our balance sheet and giving the, the banking the sector wash. was sort of a wash. Right. Um, and. You know, our standard baseline theories of how asset prices work tells you that's what would happen. The theories in which that doesn't happen, in which we drive down rates, are, are really fragile, really speculative theories. And, and they don't really – they aren't really that persuasive uh, in my mind. Uh, they require a high degree of sort of segmentation between markets that, that uh, the people who buy and sell 10-year treasuries um, – don't participate in the market for two-year treasuries Mm. um, and don't participate in the market for 10-year corporate bonds. And so we can push one rate around. Oh, no, they do participate in the market for 10-year corporate bonds. So we can push that rate and the 10-year corporate bond rate comes down, but it doesn't affect the, it's not affected by the expectation what the two-year yield is over the 10 years. So I start with the baseline that quantitative easing, high likelihood had very little effect by itself. Now, having said that, the things we bought, treasuries and agency mortgage-backed securities, you know, are problematic. Treasuries I don't have a problem with, but the fact that we bought so much housing finance debt I think is a precedent that's going to come back to haunt us in years years down the road. I think that the, the fact that we intervened in late 2008 announcing that we would buy uh, agency mortgage-backed securities um, could have had a, a, a supportive effect on – on housing debt prices, um, but then for us to intervene two, a couple more times into the agency mortgage-backed securities market implies a fairly high degree of commitment to housing as a sector by the Federal Reserve, relative to other sectors. And keep in mind here, for us to buy housing debt instead of buying the same amount of treasury debt means that housing, borrowing costs may be lower, but other borrowing costs are higher. For us to choose to do a quantitative check, yeah, it's effectively driving down one sector's rates, but it's going to be at the expense of some other sector. And,
0: and you take it to the nth degree of scariness. The Bank of Japan, in terms of pushing on this string for 30 years, buys equities I know. in the common market. And that hasn't been yeah. the biggest boon to the Nikkei, but you wonder where it would be without it.
1: Yeah, yeah. The political economy, that in the US would be a frightening prospect, I think.
0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Jeffrey Lacker. He's now Distinguished Professor of Economics at Virginia Commonwealth University. For 13 years into 2017, he was president of the Richmond Federal Reserve. Um, You do mention the – nobody uses the term moral hazard anymore. I think it was – you know, every taboo was shattered after 2008 and 2009. You talk about the Fed buying up mortgage-backed securities and agency debt there. Uh, What about the other side of the ledger? Could I get you to shed a tear for the saver? (laughs) <laughs> Let me say this: I did not partake in any subprime chicanery. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents live in Florida. I grew up there. They didn't, you know. The skyline was so full of, uh, uh, you know, all day debt and wishy-washy liar loan stuff. We, you know, I paid down my debt, my student debt. I saved money, and it feels like Professor Lacker. I was punished. After the financial crisis, because to bring down these rates, you necessarily, you know, banks can get away with giving you nothing for your money market rates or securities of deposit. Um, I understand that people who took risk then got the upside, people who were liquid enough to buy property, who were liquid enough to buy equities, you know, and the S&P tripled. But
1: this is something fundamentally unfair, and you've, you've talked about it before. I think uh, you have a good case uh, in the sense that um – I think that that the policy community, uh, the Treasury and the senior leadership at the Fed in 2007 and 8 uh, took actions that um, just had a tremendous and incredible fallout for a lot of Americans. And I, th- I think fundamental questions of fairness about uh, the basis for their actions uh, and its uh, consistency with. American democratic norms, I think, are worth asking, worth posing. Uh, but it's a problem that goes back um, decades before 2007. I, moral hazard, let me just comment on the term moral hazard. That yes, was, please. That um, was coined in the insurance literature, um, <laughs> and it, it it referred to um, uh, it, people who had insurance and, and then responded to the incentive that insurance contracts give you uh, to be – uh, say, less mindful of uh, efforts you could take to reduce the risk that was being insured. And um, to insurers, this struck them as immoral. So moral hazard was the phrase, but it's not really a matter of morality. Moral hazard really means the incentive effect of some policy. So uh, you you undertake a certain policy, and if people expect you to do that again, it's going to have an effect on their behavior. And I think that's what we've we've seen. So at the point at which Lehman failed, you brought up uh, Lehman Brothers, um, and and this is, you know, right around the time, 10 years ago, that, that Lehman uh, was uh, forced into bankruptcy. At the time that happened, there were widespread expectations that Lehman would get government support. Uh, and, in fact, uh, Hank Paulson, the Treasury Secretary, had to push back hard against uh, those expectations and and flat out told people there would be no government money involved. Those expectations didn't come from nowhere. Um, months before March, of course, we'd. Um, the uh, Stearns and J P Morgan. The yeah, shotgun exactly. Wedding. There was the New York Fed supported. Uh, the merger. Um, were you as uh,
0: terrified by that number as I was when I saw
1: The $2 takeout thing, the take-under. Do you remember?
0: Yeah. JP, I remember. Something – I told you that we were. it was a tip of the iceberg scenario. If something was so toxic that Jamie Dimon could pour over the books of Bear Stearns and get these guys to agree to a $2 a share take-under and then everything that happened between March and September. Well, the way year.
1: Bear played out, remember um, Thursday night – before that weekend, the critical event occurred where J.P. Morgan Chase, which is let me back up, We have to explain the relationship between. They had a relationship sure, beforehand. Sure. So um, Bear Stearns, one of a number of entities that have government securities broker dealers, right? And um, all the broker dealers clear on one of two banks. And when I when that when I say clear and settle on one of two banks, what it means is that Bear Stearns broker dealer had an account at J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, in um, every day, they would trade securities, but at the end of the day, they'd have an inventory of securities that they needed to finance, and they would uh, they would find in the investor community um, people to do RPs with. So right. um, they would get cash into their account at the end of the day, and those securities would be very mundane, moved out, very right? mundane, liquid but then stuff. Every morning, firms. every morning, J.P. Morgan Chase would. Take those securities back from the RP lenders, give them to Bear Stearns, but drain um, Bear Stearns' account with them. So Bear Stearns had a, a huge overdraft every day with the broker with J.P. Morgan Chase, and this sure. was true for every government securities dealer. They ran intraday overdrafts, hmm. but this meant that the the two clearing banks, J.P. Morgan Chase and uh, Bank of New York Mellon had life or death control over any broker dealer. And what happened Thursday night is that some RP customers, investors, were saying, we don't want to invest in Bear Stearns. JP Morgan Thursday night said, we're not going to fund your account Friday morning. Now, the implications of that are all those investors would would have their securities, they'd have the, the securities they borrowed, but a lot of them didn't want them. They were just there as collateral. They wanted the cash. So Jamie Dimon forced, forced the issue. Friday morning, five o'clock in the morning, there's a call, Tim Geithner, Don Cohn, Ben Bernanke, all those guys. And they decided to lend the money to Bear Stearns so that they could clear and settled that morning because J.P. Morgan wasn't going to extend them an intraday loan.
0: Now, is it bad on on, um, Bear Stearns that they relied so much on one counterparty for liquidity? Or is it bad on the system for allowing J.P. Morgan and B.O.N.Y. to control so much of it? I mean, hindsight is crystal clear 2020, but it also reminds me of the grief that Goldman Sachs got for pushing AIG over the ledge, right? You could have just said, well, you know, effectively, you know, you could forgive a margin call or you were incented at some point to stick something to AIG later that year, Mm -hmm. which then caused another systemic Mm -hmm. ripple. And I don't know if that's a function of too big to fail as much as
1: concentrated power in the hands of few. I think it's a reaction to just the way the Fed behaved for decades before. There was a case in 1985 where a Bank of New York, um, Mellon's uh, computer system went haywire and they borrowed like 26 billion dollars from the the new york fed <laughs> right. and just a that. ridiculous amount of money i may have the amount a little sure. bit off um, but we had demonstrated over the years our willingness to lend money in order to make the government securities market turn out okay and give them time to sort of sort things out but the result of that arrangement is that um the government securities dealers don't have an incentive to keep a lot of cash on hand uh, so that they, they, they have an incentive to use daylight credit from J.P. Morgan Chase and Bank of New York Mellon. And that gives uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, those two clearing banks, the incentive to keep doing this because they know at the end of the day, if they say no, they can force the Fed to come in and lend money. Isn't that the ultimate moral hazard then? It and is. And
0: the, the, the risk
1: is the, the the
0: profits are private. Clearly, Jamie Dimon and J.P. Morgan shareholders and people who have in, in their index funds, but ultimately the Fed and ergo the taxpayers getting hit with a transitive tab.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it, someone's picking up the risk, and and it provides an incentive to all these market participants to structure themselves in ways that are fragile. It it diminishes their incentive to protect themselves against financial shocks. Because a true shocks. risk
0: of ruin, you can't be ruined. You are too big to fail at that point. It, it, we, we we came close to letting Lehman fail and then, and then realized, gosh, this is awful. The obverse of this is so right.
1: unthinkable that cleaning up a disaster after the Chernobyl. Right. So there's two level of questions about this. One is – you know, that, that type of backstop it has tremendous effects. And people talk about the financial system being fragile and being subject to shocks. Well, the way people structure themselves is highly conditioned on the sense that at the end of the day, the New York Fed will probably come in and lend the money to prevent people from having to suffer the consequences of some substantial financial disruption. And that has been demonstrated back to Franklin National Bank in 1974 and back before that.
0: Continental and Illinois. Does that sound point Con- to you?
1: That was, That's late in the game. That's like 1984. <laughs> or to go back and
0: look at the s and crisis and now yeah. it's so de minimis. You could see Tom Brokaw on YouTube talking about this being the biggest financial calamity of our lifetime. The Clinton administration coming in and the National, you know, the Council of Economic Advisors saying, this overhang is so big. What could we possibly do to gin up growth after this financial crisis? And it's so penny ante now in comparison. Ditto the crash yeah. of 87 yeah. you try to find on a chart. Yeah. I'd like to quote from a speech that you gave an address. That you gave at WNL. In the case of financial distress, policymakers have to choose between on the one hand, easing investors' pain and thus avoiding political recrimination for inaction, and on the other, reinforcing healthy incentives for investors to manage risk-taking. This is a classic example of a time-consistency problem, a situation in which the exigencies of the moment conflict with a commitment you would
1: like to uphold and would like people to believe you will uphold in the future. That's the crux of it. I mean, think about parenting, right? I mean, your child does something, your first thought, you know, is well what the what should be what what do I how do I want them to behave, and the next thought should be how do I want them to believe I will respond in the future when they behave that way, and you should act accordingly. And even though you have sympathy for them and you'd like to minimize their pain, you realize you're not time, doing them any favors. You're by... not doing them any favors by giving them incentive to repeat the behavior. So what is the teachable moment in this? Let's take J P
0: Morgan. J P Morgan. Used to just be J.P. Morgan. It's now J.P. Morgan Chase, Washington Mutual, Providian, <laughs> Bear Stearns. Bear Stearns is gorgeous, Grand Central. You know, in the end, they ended up getting Bear Stearns for a you know Fed subsidized song at the Bear Stearns headquarters. You talk about too big to fail. I mean, it's ridiculous how much bigger these firms are right now, and especially with the Trump administration coming in and saying, you know, Dodd Frank and all that. Let's let's kind of. Dilute that, let's unwind it. It was overkill on the regulation front. This can effectively happen again. It doesn't have to happen in subprime or CD squared or you know RMBS, but uh, these guys effectively hold the economy over a barrel, five or six systemically yeah. critical firms. So
1: part of the problem in coming into 2007 was ambiguity. We had, in many instances over the previous decades, intervened to rescue investors. And the Treasury had never articulated a clear set of parameters, like here's what we back, here's what we don't back. So there's deposit insurance. By law, that's backed by the FDIC. But we kept intervening to support uninsured depositors, uninsured creditors of these failing banking institutions, but never wanted to admit that we were going to do that in the future. So, it, in fact, we engaged in a strategy. People called it constructive ambiguity. Constructive ambiguity. That's which is, so nomic. Yeah, but it's a, That's it, Orwellian almost. It is, but it's an attempt to have sort of your cake and eat it too. You can't. Because it's—, it, it's um, You want to preserve the ability to intervene. So you don't want to say we're not going to intervene like this again. But you want people to believe you might not intervene because you want to maximize the incentive know, You know the
0: metaphor I think of in terms of that? There used to be, to my mind, when I was first aware of the Federal Reserve and Alan Greenspan and especially the interventions of 98 that saved the markets and they came roaring back in 99, there used to be a kind of a burlesque. To what they did, they wouldn't show you everything, right? You'd get these hints. They would have that briefcase indicator with Greenspan and whatnot. And even though, you know, it's like the street was like browbeating him to do something about Russia and the financial crisis and LTCM behind the scenes. The next thing you hear over the hoot and holler, the little squawk box on the trading desk is, "We got a fifty basis point rate cut, fifty basis point." Next thing you know, the markets rip roaring at the end of the year, and that moral hazard. That taboo was shattered. And it was very hard for him, as you well know, when you joined the Federal Reserve, uh, when you became the president of the Richmond Fed in 2004, they were being criticized. The Greenspan Fed was being criticized for keeping rates too low for too long after 2001. And obviously, hindsight is 2020, but we then had to deal with the after effects of probably exceedingly um, stimulative Fed policy. Into 2007 and 2008, it swelled the subprime bubble, and then after that, everything falls apart, and we have to take rates to zero. Are yeah. we? Have we? Have we effectively doomed ourselves to this uh, awful cycle, this codependency of overshooting on both ways?
1: I'm not so sure. Um, I think the evidence is out on some of those uh, claims you've ripped off. Um, th- but
0: rhetorically, it did sound great. Right, it did. Clark? Yeah, okay, it, okay, it was pretty ahead. impressive. Right, you go know? ahead. Go yeah.
1: Um, so yeah, you'd make a, d- a great documentary maker, you know. Uh, so the, the, I, I think on the, the housing uh, expansion uh, before the, the recession, I think the evidence is out. there's some uh, who claim you know, yeah, low interest rates made a big difference for that. There's a lot of evidence that the behavior of Fannie and Freddie um, and their low income housing goals um, all it had a, a very substantial effect. Um, so it, it, it's not obvious to me that, that you need to lay the—that it's fair to lay the the uh, the blame for the housing uh, expansion and boom at the the feet of the Fed. You can, I think, fairly um, point to the fact that from early 2004—remember, we kept low interest rates low. 2003 started raising in mid 'o four. From early 2004 to the end of 2007— Inflation averaged 2.9%, close to 3%. That's above average, and that's a long swing. That's a long stretch of, of high inflation. Now, sure, it was driven by oil prices, but they're endogenous. They're part of the global economy. And, and I think that you could fairly fault the Fed for keeping too much stimulus in place uh, for too long um, on the basis of the evidence of how inflation behaved. You remember, we we in early 04, in fact, the uh, first meeting I attended as as principal was uh, June of 04. I wasn't yet president, but I was filling in for my predecessor, sort of act, on an acting basis at the FOMC. And uh, we began int- raising interest rates then, and we went 25 basis points every meeting. There were eight scheduled meetings a year. It kind of would have been an, a real great coincidence if the right number of interest, the right interest rate increase over the next two years that we wanted was 25 basis points times eight meetings a year times two years. That kind of would have been a great coincidence, <laughs> right? And in, in hindsight, our willingness to stick to that schedule seems, um, uh, seems to be um, something worth questioning. Maybe we should have gone earlier. Maybe we should have thrown in a 50 every couple of meetings just a to – A
0: 50 sounds so nineteen ninety. Could you imagine a 50 basis <laughs> point hike today would be I, – I just – everything has become so premeditated and people look mm-hmm. at the minutes and the, yeah. the future probability and whatnot. Um, the last time we had anything close to this was I, – I keep reading about 1994 and that mini shock that it sent across Wall Street when Greenspan had to come in and ratchet.
1: Well, he deli- he deliberately made it. You, um, you know, he deliberately – uh, engineered it to be something that would get attention He wanted attention because uh, he wanted to pull back pull out of the stimulus because inflation was heating up and he he wanted to keep it on a downward trend and and we announced it for the first time ever that was the big change Now we're kind of forced to do that by um, what had come out in congressional hearings over the previous two years that we'd gotten a lot of criticism for our past practice before 94 of, Making interest rate changes, policy changes, and not telling anybody and letting Wall Street it's guys kind so of figure quaint. it out. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Could so you we, imagine tweaking so up at your and, Quotron yeah. and seeing that? <laughs> right. And it would sort of dribble out. You know, the Wall Street Journal the next day would say, market participants believe, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so um, we started announcing our policy changes. And then later, about a decade later, we started announcing it. Whether we moved or not, we'd issue a statement later in the, the 90s. You know, and I asked your predecessor, Al
0: Broadus, when we had him on the show, do you think that economists, and the Federal Reserve especially, they subscribe to too narrow a definition of inflation? You were talking about the period of, of inflation creeping up to, what, 2.9% in the years, that mm-hmm. oil shot up to triple digits. Mm-hmm. But we're always told about core inflation that backs out energy and food prices. Who Who has to— Live by a standard of core inflation. Well,
1: that's that's. I mean, something I know you get, get this a lot at
0: cocktail parties and stuff. But inflation well, is inflation. People would raise
1: their hand, like, "Do you do you buy you know food and gas?" Oh, well, mean, of course you, I do. I do. A big part of my life yeah. is
0: avocado expenditure for well, the, the kids for guacamole. I mean, <laughs> you know, you look at the price of a Haas
1: avocado wholesale yeah,
0: over five or yeah. six years. I
1: have sympathy about the guac there, so <laughs> although I don't have kids uh, at home anymore. So the the, the simple explanation is is. Is true uh, that the focus on core inflation is because core inflation is a better forecaster of future inflation, meaning the next year or two, than overall inflation. So core inflation better forecasts overall inflation than overall inflation itself forecasts future overall inflation. And it's a statistical quirk, it has to do with the differences between the way food price and food and oil markets work. Compared to. But is there any more robust way for
0: policy, Fed policymakers, and central banks to be mindful of asset bubbles? I know Greenspan and Bernanke and their defense say, That's what not could we job. have done? How is it not your job, though, if it's, you know, reg, reg, there was a reg, reg T or other levers that could be pulled? If right now, I got to tell you, I'm not feeling the 3.9% unemployment oats, but I'm really feeling the wealth effect of my Vanguard portfolio. I've been like a Vanguard ninja. Right, <laughs> small cap, emerging, everything—that's great, and that's really added to my wealth effect. If I'm thinking about my house or the fact that we get hit up with with solicitations to sell the house every week in a buoyant market, shouldn't that count for something?
1: Our job is—it feels c- inflationary. The job, to me. A, the job of a central banker is to maintain stability of the purchasing power of money. But the job of a central banker has fundamentally been changed so much just over ten or twenty years. Now many central bankers have other jobs as well but those jobs should not be confused with maintaining the purchasing power of money yes we have we've been given respons- regulatory and and uh, supervisory responsibility for a substantial chunk of the financial system bank holding companies member banks and the like quantitative easing buying mortgage securities
0: i mean all of these taboos have been shattered now yeah but th- this th- is a those freestyle inter- job description those, intervention-
1: those interventions were aimed at maintaining the purchasing power of money preventing deflation keeping inflation close to our target at two percent and that's what they were about now the binary get- view of kind of full employment
0: and moderate inflation, that just remains. Yeah, that's that's the objective. Yeah, I thought at some point it got so tricky uh, with the bank bailouts and everything in 2009 that I was convinced, you know, we had cash for clunkers. I was convinced the Fed was just going to print out gift cards to send me. <laughs> you know, things had to get creative, had to get freestyle. I mean, what was that feeling like for you guys when you, when you, you know, the, the, the weightlessness in the room and everybody kept invoking the Great Depression? And obviously Ben Bernanke, the, the head of the Fed back then, he was a scholar of the Great Recession. I took his course in college. Um, what did that all feel like real time? And by the way, Citi, everybody was whispering about Citibank failing in early 2009. Some really unthinkable
1: things in hindsight. Yeah, Citi's interesting. There's a new book out by um, uh, Vern McKinley and uh, James Freeman about the history of Citibank. And it, it kind of chronicles the uh, like a century of them getting – Rescued by mm. the, the Federal Reserve and regulators over time. So it's it's not the first episode, not vis, not the first yeah. um, visit uh, for uh, Citibank. I, th- I think that there's, um, you know, within the economics profession, been a range of views about uh, the uh, ability of the central bank to have an influence on real economic activities and the way in which those inf- – those, um, those effects play out and I think there was there became a division within the committee it's no secret as there in the transcripts um, between those who had a more uh, limited view uh, of central bank's capabilities and and limited view of the appropriate role of central bank and those who had very expansive do whatever it takes kind of view and I was in the former camp um, along with uh, some of my colleagues um, and it was a little disheartening. We expressed our views strongly, but I think there were some fundamental disagreements about the path we took. For me, it began in August of 2007 um, with um, uh, the, the cut in the discount rate on August 17th. So August 2007 was when financial market turmoil began. Sure. Um, it uh, emerged as investors started pulling away from uh, the commercial paper conduits, these off-balance sheet entities mm-hmm. that a lot of the large investment banks and commercial banks had put together to fund collections of assets of various types for various purposes. Investors were pulling away from the ones that had, you know, 5 or 10% exposure to subprime mortgage, um, mm-hmm. you know, risk. And um, that led to funding difficulties at some of these large institutions. I mean, they basically had to take some of these – they chose to take some of these things back. But you have their- to
0: cringe and go back and look at the FOMC minutes from early 2007 and that, yes, we do sense some weakness in the housing
1: market, but completely oblivious to what was around the corner. Well, so let's look at that narrative, right? I mean, so in August 'oh seven, we cut the discount rate. Now – banks had plenty of liquidity they were borrowing in the third quarter of 2007 the the largest large largest banks borrowed 150 billion dollars 140 or 50 billion dollars from the home loan banks they and they were borrowing at just a few basis points above the federal funds target rate they didn't need discount window credit but the fed through what it did by cutting the discount rate and some a bunch of other communications that went along with that, that we could maybe talk about on some other show, sent the message that we thought that central bank credit was the palliative, was Mm -hmm. the remedy for financial market turmoil. That alone had to have changed incentives. Bear Stearns could have raised more capital in the fall. Lehman could have Lehman had a, a capital offering in the winter. That was subscribed six to one. They they only took five billion. They could have sold 30 billion in stock, but they the equity holders, current equity shareholders weren't willing to take the dilution. the dilution, right? So they it it had to have changed the cost that large banks were willing to bear to steal themselves, to make themselves less vulnerable to the kind of shocks that happened in the fall of 08. And so they went into the fall of 08. Terribly fragile. Lehman didn't cut the price on what it could have raised. I mean, it could have raised money, but if it, it wasn't willing to suffer much dilution. So it— skated close to the edge and never never really rescued itself.
0: And it makes me think back to that famous movie, It's a Wonderful Life, in 1946, where banker George Bailey, he had whites of the eye contact with all of his people. He knew that his bank was only as good as the loans it made and the deposits it kept. And a run on the bank could ruin him. And you've studied this. In your W&L mm-hmm. speech, you talked about all the different firms, that, mm-hmm. all the different banks that were allowed to go bust, the tens of thousands mm-hmm. of them in the wake of the Great Depression. What made this period so different is that a couple were allowed to 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 die, uh, under traumatic terms. I mean, Merrill Lynch had a gun to its head to go with Bank of America, um, but I think what was the lesson after the fact? Goldman Sachs creditors and everybody else didn't they effectively get a hundred cents on the dollar? I mean, skin skin in the game. What came out of whose hide? If anything is going to happen again, if your risk appetite comes up and 2008 is in the rearview mirror. Uh, What's stopping you from taking advantage of the safety net all over again?
1: That's certainly an issue. But the thing I'd highlight as well is ambiguity. After, after Lehman and AIG uh, and then Wachovia two weeks later and WAMU, you'd had Bear, IndyMac, Fannie, Freddie, Lehman, AIG, WAMU, Wachovia. You'd had eight institutions. And if you look at their capital structure and where – the government support came in and who took a loss. They handled it seven different ways, seven different places where they cut the capital structure. And I said, remember you there bear were savers
0: savers at IndyMac over $200,000. Yeah. Well, I remember
1: correctly. They took losses. Got a hit over yeah. the FDIC. Yeah. And you know? same thing at WAMU. The holding company, people were left behind uh, in bankruptcy to bear losses. So there
0: really wasn't uniformity to it. They they talk,
1: what constructive ambiguity? Did they really yeah. say that? They, yeah, back in the 90s, yeah, that was the thing. And as a result, after AIG, I think that policymakers realized nothing they said about the limits of the federal financial safety net would be credible unless it was just everything. And they couldn't afford everything and they didn't have the authority. And that's why I think Paulson and Bernanke went to Congress and asked for $700 billion dollars. Worth of taxpayer money to backstop everything, they realized that they that this plan of this this sort of informal plan of saying all right we're gonna we're gonna case by case we're gonna decide who we're gonna support and who we're not just led markets to go haywire because they didn't know you know where's the government gonna come in where are they not gonna come in you know you saw reserve uh, money market fund this uh, reserve prime fund take a hit but they were they bought the Lehman paper because they thought, well, surely they're going to get support like Bayer did. If Bayer got support, Lehman will get support. And that's a pretty legitimate inference to make. Mm. Lehman was bigger than Bayer. Everyone thought, you know, you look at the investment banks, there's Bayer. You go up the list. Lehman's the next biggest. Then there's Merrill. Then Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs. The expectation was, all right if they support Bayer, they're going to support everyone bigger than that. And then they, they you know, uh refute that expectation with Lehman and then turn around with AIG, which nobody thought was in the federal sa- safety net, all of a sudden they get support. And then it becomes obvious that that's a way of supporting Morgan and and Goldman Sachs and some European think Do you, think, do you think
0: that um, Uncle Sam should have asked for more equity on the upside? No, I think it's... Because um, they like to say, we paid back the Fed and then some.
1: I, you but know, there's I, an
0: asymmetry to it.
1: Yeah, I... I think we'd be better off, you know, back to the thing about parenting, right? I mean, what regime do you want us to live in? What do we, what regime do we want to live in? We're in a regime now where that ambiguity remains. Congress gave the FDIC authority to bail out anybody um, but, and borrow funds from the Treasury to do it. The stated plan is pretty discretionary. It's going to be left up to the judgment of policymakers in the event. And so now, arguably, it's it's hard to figure out. Back at the Richmond Fed, um, starting in for data for the end of 1999, but then we, we started doing it again after the crisis, I asked our economists to add up all of the debt, all the liabilities of financial firms in the U.S., And to ask the question, which of those are explicitly guaranteed by the government and which of them are implicitly guaranteed based on established precedent or announced policy? At the end of 1999, it was 45%. Now it's 60%. We're running a system where you can reasonably infer that at least 60% of financial firm liabilities are are government-backed in one way or another. But it's not explicit. It's not by law. Government has, doesn't have to do it. Policymakers don't have to do it. So in the next crisis, facing that ambiguity, what's going to happen?
0: Well, you remember Fannie Freddie was somewhat ambiguous as well, right? There yeah. was a backstop, full faith and credit type thing. But when it was truly tested right. and it, it ends up being this kind of unending liability thing, I don't think we've reached yeah. the end of the road for Fannie yeah,
1: and Freddie. Yeah, and preferred shareholders took a hit. They weren't expecting that. Uh, so, it, yeah, it's – it it and it forces your hand if you haven't made a commitment. If there isn't a formal commitment, at the end of the day, um, you end up intervening in order to reduce volatility, but you're all you're doing is living up to expectations of intervention. You're just hmm. feeding those expectations. This came out in the Wakovia case, and that's something, you know, where I had a little bit of involvement. I was in, on a couple of the calls. Um, because Wachovia was in Charlotte and in our, our my Federal Reserve district, um, so that weekend um, they said we need to, a resolution. Wells Fargo was going to put in. Was there a, something maybe?
0: like a silent run on the bank at Wachovia? I remember people. So there were was losing a there was a assets. slow
1: there was a slow drain of deposits. Um, you know, all throughout the summer and into the fall, it picked up pace a little bit. You know, firms were pulling money out and putting it at bigger banks like Bank of America or at smaller community banks that they could keep an eye on. Um, But then um, Thursday night, uh, the 26th, um, Washington Mutual is closed, and the bondholders of the holding company are left to take losses in bankruptcy. So bondholders of Wachovia start calling up, and these are long some of them long-term bondholders. Yeah, yeah. They don't have it's
0: a like right... It's bank. It, they don't it, have a sure. right
1: to be paid on Friday, but they yeah. ask, are you willing to buy back your debt? And a lot of big financial firms routinely sort of made a market in their own debt. But asking that question puts Wachovia on the hook. I mean, they have to decide, do we want to use our liquidity for this or do we want to hold on to it? And that's what, and it becomes
0: a self-fulfilling prophecy.
1: Well, if they can't find the liquidity, but they've left themselves vulnerable to that, uh, you know, uh, the way they structured themselves by not, you know, assuring that they had more access to liquidity going into that weekend. So that weekend there's uh, discussions and there's a, there's a call on Saturday that involves um, Sheila Baer, head of the FDIC. Tim Geithner's on. He's head of the New York Fed. The Board of Governors is on. The Office of the Comptroller of the Currency is on. And Richmond's on because it's Wachovia. And, and Janet Yellen was actually on the call. She was out in San Francisco because um, of Wells being the bidder. And there was this little debate between Sheila Baer and Tim Geithner about whether to back up holding company debt. And Tim said if you don't back everything, all the liabilities of Wakovia, no large bank will be able to issue debt on Monday morning. But if you think about that, it's sort of astonishing. I mean, it sort of sounds natural, like the kind of thing you'd say, but it's astonishing. It's basically we have to intervene because everyone expects us to intervene. And if we don't intervene, they're going to realize we're not going to intervene. They're going to not buy anybody else's debt. So the market for everyone else's debt was based on the expectation of intervention and support. So it's a it's an astonishing admission that we were essentially living up to expectations that we'd built up over decades of intervention. I just don't understand how you
0: inoculate the system from that happening again. It's such a gore, you you pick your metaphor. Is it a, you know, a unbelievable tangled web a Gordian knot you know, you would think that you would step back, put it on silent the speakerphone and say how did we let the system get <laughs> this interconnected that it's kind of it has its gun to our head do something or if you don't do something it's on you still
1: yeah it's a deep question i mean and if you choose not to decide you still have made a choice is what rush said in the song free will there, there are economists who have a fatalistic view that this is just a part of banking and democracies that it's part of the political structure of our and history of our country but there are other countries that have managed to do much better to structure banking systems that aren't so fragile uh and, uh, you know, case of Canada comes to mind. Uh, they didn't have big banking sector collapse in the great depression. They didn't even found a central bank until the mid thirties. We had all these crises in the late 1800s. They didn't have any. Uh, and it was because they allowed consolidation, um, early on. We didn't allow consolidation really until the eighties and nineties. And so we have these big banks that grew way f- more rapidly than they would have, if they'd been allowed to, consolidated in the 30s. Instead, we had this deposit insurance system. Go back to the rule of law. The hope you'd have is that you can set some boundaries in law and hold regulators accountable for staying within those boundaries. But if you give them this discretionary authority to go beyond it, to do more lending, for example, like the Fed can do, or to rescue uninsured creditors the way the FDIC can, if you put those little loopholes in there – They'll use them, they'll set precedents, the precedents will force them to use them again, and they'll grow and grow and grow over time until we get in a situation like we're in now where there's a huge amount of implicit guarantees for the system.
0: Well, you know, the upshot for me, the good news in closing is that I saw a billboard on the way here that says, I can actually avail myself of a 59-month CD at the sweetheart rate of 3%, 10 years after the worst of the financial crisis. How do you like me now? (laughs) Jeff Lacker, I cannot thank you enough. Former president of the Richmond Fed and now distinguished professor of economics at Virginia Commonwealth University. I'm going to come audit that class (laughs) and order a pizza in the back row. You can mark my words. No eating in class. Thank you so much for coming on. Take care. Thanks a lot. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Holler if you'd like to sponsor. We are on NPR One and on iTunes at linkfulldradio.com. We take into account a wide range of information, including measures of labor market conditions, indicators of inflation pressures and inflation expectations, and readings on financial and international developments. Our committee carefully monitors actual and expected developments relative to symmetric audience goals. So, dear listeners, please hike your ratings of us. <laughs> I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week.